Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing our survey through the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of God's salvation through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, King Jesus. Well, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus entering into the land after a time of testing in the wilderness. And we noted that um, His movements were tracing the steps of ancient Israel and that we should be expecting to see Him facing opposition. Well, this week, the opposition is continuing to mount. Our passage today talks a lot about the Sabbath, right? What is the Sabbath? Well, the word itself is derived from a Hebrew verb meaning to cease. In practice, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, a day of rest, a day when we cease laboring. The Sabbath has roots in the book of Genesis, in the creation account. After creating the universe, God rested on the seventh day. So even God works, and even God rests. There was a divine rhythm of work and rest built into the created order. But we first see the Sabbath being practiced by God's people in connection with Israel's time in the wilderness. Keep in mind, Israel was an agrarian society. They depended upon the land for sustenance and provision. They had to work the land in order to eat. So when the nation of Israel is wandering through the wilderness, they are unable to feed themselves. They depend upon the Lord for sustenance and provision, and so God provides bread from heaven. However, the Israelites were instructed to only collect the bread six days per week. On the seventh day, they were not not permitted to collect bread. So by taking a day off, Israel is faithfully declaring its dependence upon the Lord for sustenance and provision. And once Israel settles in the land, once they are able to feed themselves, they are still expected to observe the Sabbath as a reminder that God is still their sustainer and provider. Again, if you have to work the land in order to eat, then then taking a day off is foolishness. But if the Lord is your provider, if He gives the growth and He bears the fruit, then taking a day off is an incredible privilege. No other nation of the world had the privilege of ceasing from its labors. No other God loved His people so intimately and attentively. The Lord was saying to Israel, trust me, trust me. I know you have a nice new H-E-B in your neighborhood. I know you probably have a week's worth of food in your pantry, but I am still your sustainer and provider. I want you to rest in that knowledge. Joseph Ratzinger described the Sabbath as the heart of all social legislation. The Sabbath anticipates a society free of domination, a foretaste of the city to come. On the Sabbath, there are no masters and no servants. There is only the freedom of all the children of God and creation's release from anxiety. On the Sabbath, Israel rested, but they were also required to give rest to others. And so the Sabbath tore down the distinction between rich and poor. The Sabbath humanized the nation of Israel by making it impossible to achieve maximum efficiency. 
For these reasons and more, the Sabbath was a divine blessing and privilege for a nation of former slaves. Sabbath keeping was not merely an obligation. Whereas all the other nations were working seven days a week, Sabbath was only for children of the king. But here's the problem. Israel had twisted the Sabbath. Israel had twisted the Sabbath until it became more of a burden than a privilege. By the first century, Sabbath keeping was an important part of Jewish piety and a key marker of Jewish identity. And there was an entire book of extra-biblical teachings on what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath. And these teachings were designed to prevent people from even, even getting close to breaking the Sabbath, which I think was a reasonable impulse. But these teachings had the effect of twisting the privilege of Sabbath into a burden. And that's what sets the stage for this conflict in Luke chapter 6. Verses 1 to 2. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So the disciples of Jesus are hungry. As they're walking through a grain field, they pluck some grain and eat. Now, this was not stealing. The law specifically allowed for this. And to be clear, the disciples of Jesus were not actually breaking the Sabbath. They were arguably disregarding the extra-biblical teachings about what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath. The disciples were not disobeying God. They were arguably disobeying the scribes and Pharisees, a group of people who were seriously nitpicky when it came to observing the Sabbath. Verses 3 to 5. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, to be honest, to be honest, I, I'm not entirely sure what Jesus is doing by referencing this story here. Uh, we can discuss a couple options, all right? But in, in 1 Samuel 17, David defeats Goliath. You've probably heard that story. But David was not the king of Israel when he defeated Goliath. The king of Israel was named Saul, and Saul did not like all of the attention David was getting. He tried to kill David, and David had to go on the run. And at one point, David flees to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is just a mobile form of the temple. And the priest comes out to meet David, and because David's men were hungry, the priest gives them the bread of the presence. What is the bread of the presence? Within the tabernacle was a table, and on that table were 12 loaves of holy bread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 loaves could only be eaten by the priests, and only on the Sabbath. So every week, the priests would eat the 12 loaves and replace them with a fresh batch. Okay, again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what point Jesus is making, but I want to offer two possible interpretations. Option number one, when the priest gave the bread to David and his men, the spirit of the law was upheld. 
Jesus commends the priests for setting aside ceremonial law in order to exercise charity toward hungry men. The law that said only priests could eat the bread was trumped by the moral necessity of feeding the hungry. And therefore, Jesus is calling the Pharisees to to reconsider their ethical priorities. Option number two, when the priest gave the bread to David and his men, the law was actually broken. Strictly speaking, the priest should not have done that. And in this case, Jesus is calling the Pharisees out for their inconsistency. Why are you being so lenient with David and so strict with me? So again, option one, the Pharisees need to reconsider their ethical priorities. Option number two, the Pharisees need to be consistent with their condemnations. But either way, either way, by referencing this story, Jesus is saying, if you want to condemn me and my men for doing something lawful on the Sabbath, then surely you ought to condemn David and his men for doing something unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus follows that up by saying, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Mic drop. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite thing to call himself. The phrase has roots in Daniel chapter 7, and Jesus uses it over 80 times in the Gospels. So this sentence is packed with meaning. But at minimum, Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the authority to determine the purpose of the Sabbath and to correct any false teaching concerning the Sabbath. That's a bold claim. Okay, let's move on. Verses 6 to 7. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. All right, remember that book of extra-biblical teachings on what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath? This was in there too. Healing was permitted when a person was in danger of dying, but if the condition was not life-threatening, healing was forbidden. Again, this was nowhere in the Bible, but that's what they were watching him to see. Verses 8 to 11, but Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. Here in a bit, I'm going to make a case for a different translation of that phrase, but for now, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So technically, Jesus didn't do anything. He didn't touch the man. He didn't act upon him in any way. He issued a verbal command, and the man's withered hand was restored. This was all perfectly within the bounds of what was permissible on the Sabbath. So why are the scribes and Pharisees wanting to destroy Jesus. Look at verse 9 again. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? 
the juxtaposition of this question with the fury of the scribes and Pharisees is interesting and perplexing and ironic. Okay, so help me understand. You won't allow Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, but it's okay for you to plot His destruction on the Sabbath. Not only had they twisted the Sabbath into a burden, but they were using the Sabbath as a means of snaring a righteous man. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus compares Himself to King David and claims to be the Son of Man. That's bold. And yet, nobody was filled with this kind of fury. So what about this man, what about healing this man was so scandalous? I believe the answer to that question is hiding just just below the surface of this text, and so we're going to have to do some digging. Uh, To begin, I want to read a couple stories from the Old Testament. Um, Just keep your Bible open to Luke 6 as as we jump around a bit. Um, Because I I want you to see these connections. There are only two other instances in the Bible where a person's hand is healed. So we should take a look. The first is in 1 Kings 13. King Jeroboam is participating in idol worship, and a prophet comes to him and rebukes him. Verses 4 to 6. This is from the New American Standard Translation. Now, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up and withered, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out on the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. So we have a hand stretched out, a hand in need of healing, and a hand restored. Now let's look at the book of Exodus, chapter 4. God is teaching Moses how to work miracles so that the Israelites and Egyptians will listen to him. Verses 2 to 7, again, this is the NASB translation. The Lord said to him, what is, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. That's his cloak. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Again, we we have a hand stretched out, a hand in need of healing, and a hand restored. Okay, one quick thought on stretched out hands. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is commanding people to stretch out their hands to act on His behalf. Here's a quick survey of a few instances from the book of Exodus alone. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. 
The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt. Stretch out, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. And what do you know? When we come to Luke chapter 6, we see the same themes. There's a hand in need of healing. There's a hand stretched out and a hand restored. These are the exact words and phrases. There's one more key connection that I think is worth making. In verse 8, Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, rise and stand in the midst. That's a more literal translation of what Jesus actually says. It's a strikingly strange way to say, hey, buddy, come stand right here, right? Come stand in the midst. Well, the phrase in the midst is also all over the book of Exodus. And I, I would be happy to prove that maybe after, but I think I really need to get to my point. Jesus heals this man with his voice, and so he avoids breaking the Sabbath. However, the words he uses are the words of Yahweh. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus puts himself in the place of King David. That's bold. In verses 6 through 11, Jesus puts himself in the place of God. And I think that's why the scribes and Pharisees immediately begin plotting his destruction. This was utter blasphemy. Unless, of course, it was true. So let's tie it all together. Within this short 11-verse passage, Jesus finds subtle ways of saying, I am the son of David the true king of Israel. I'm the son of man, the Messiah sent from heaven. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am Sabbath. I can do good and I can save life by the power of my word. I called Israel out of Egypt. I am Yahweh. So, Luke chapter 6 is not asking, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Luke chapter 6 is asking, who did Jesus think he was? But even so, I'd hate to pass on an opportunity to talk about rest. For thousands of years, Jews have observed the Sabbath and worshiped together on Saturday, the last day of the week. But the early church had real reasons for moving Christian worship to Sundays. The first day of the week, chief among those reasons, was that Jesus was resurrected in victory on a Sunday. Sunday is a celebration of new creation and new birth. So Israel labored for six days, looking forward to the Lord of the Sabbath, and the church labors six days, looking backward to the Lord of the Sabbath. So Christians will sometimes call Sunday the Lord's Day just to distinguish it from Saturday Sabbath. But the principle remains. We take one day per week to rest, to cease, to trust in God as our sustainer and provider. I want to point out two key things from today's passage that demonstrate how best to observe the Lord's Day, this day. One of them you've already done. Number one, 
What is Jesus doing on the Sabbath? He's participating in corporate worship with the people of God. And, he, and we ought to do likewise. In the words of J.C. Ryle, never be absent from God's house on Sundays without good reason. Never to miss the Lord's Supper when administered in our own congregation. Never to let our place be empty when means of grace are going on. This is one way to be a growing and prosperous Christian. The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word in season for our souls. The very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away may be the very gathering that would have cheered and established and quickened our hearts. We little know how dependent our spiritual health is on little, regular, habitual helps and how much we suffer if we miss our medicine. Speaking on behalf of your pastors, um, we, don't, we don't want you here so that we can brag to our pastor friends about how many people we have in attendance. Who, who cares? We want you here because we love you because it's good for you, because this is something that God wants for you, because God wants to bless you here. Ceasing from our labor one day each week is a powerful reminder to us, to Christians, that our God sustains and provides and gives rest. But ceasing from our labor one day each week sends a powerful message to the world that our God sustains and provides and gives rest. Okay, number two, what else is Jesus doing on the Sabbath? He's doing deeds of mercy. He's providing relief to the hurting and healing to the broken. Corporate worship and deeds of mercy. It's a good way to spend the Lord's day. So take a day off. Chick-fil-A does it. Observe the Lord's day. Come into the Lord's house. Commune with God and with God's people. Rest in Him. Be fed by Him. Drink from His cup. Ceasing from our labor sends a powerful message to a busy world about the sort of God we worship. It's a declaration of dependence. God blesses. God sustains. God provides. God gives rest. And on the other hand, when we refuse to cease from our labors, it's a declaration of independence, which is a very American thing, but a very unchristian thing. We forfeit the opportunity to tell the world what God is like, and instead we build a monument to our own self-reliance. So avail yourself of this privilege. This is a blessing and privilege for children of the King, so, so let's enjoy it together. And if, you're, if your neighborhood parish gathers on Sunday evenings, give intentional thought to how to close out the Lord's Day together. But no matter how you observe the Lord's Day, or Saturday, or your vacation, make sure it's a blessing to you and to your family and to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not allow your strict adherence to a privilege to become twisted into a burden for you and the people around you. So says the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. 
He finished his work on a Friday. He observed the Sabbath. And then on Easter Sunday, he rose from the grave unto rest and joy and glory. The first day of a new week, the first day of a new creation. And so the Lord of the Sabbath is the Lord of the resurrection. The Sabbath was always pointing forward to a future day when all God's people would enter into God's rest and joy and glory via their own resurrection. And so come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, all who, are lab- who labor and are heavy laden, and He will give you rest. Take His yoke upon you and learn from Him, for He is gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your care and provision, for giving us rest, for feeding us in the wilderness, for being our sustainer and provider. We trust You. Help us to trust You. Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the resurrection, may we, may we find our rest in You. Make us gentle and lowly in heart. Holy Spirit, give us faith. Humble us. Help us to cease from our labors in trust. Help us to rest even as we labor, knowing that the work is finished. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.